Hi, welcome to TheAnalysis.News. I'm Paul Jay. We'll be back in just a few seconds with Denis Gorbach, who's coming to us from Paris. He's a Ukrainian activist and academic, and he's going to talk to us about the current situation in Ukraine. We'll be back in just a few seconds. I've been wanting for some time to talk to a progressive Ukrainian about what's going on in Ukraine. And today I am joined by a Ukrainian academic and activist who's done studied the Ukrainian working class, Ukrainian trade unions. And his name is Denis Gorbach. He's a doctoral candidate at the Institute of Political Studies, known as Science Po in Paris. His research focuses on the politics of the Ukrainian working class. He's a member of the editorial collective of Commons, a Ukrainian socialist website. Previously, he worked as an economic journalist in the Ukrainian press. Thanks very much for joining me, Dennis. Thank you for having me. So first of all, thanks very much for doing it. I know this is a hell of a time. Uh, when, when, did you, uh, la- when were you last in Ukraine? Uh, last time it was in, during my fieldwork, which I was doing uh, in 2019. Afterwards, I didn't have a chance. And you've been mostly living in Paris then for a while? Afterwards, yes, for the last three years, uh, mostly Paris, otherwise other cities of France. So there's a, there's a lot of discussion uh, in, in the West or even around the world um, that the reasons for the Russian invasion into Ukraine. Uh, They call it Putin's invasion more than they say Russians invasion. I guess that's another question. But at any rate, uh, that the expansion of NATO is the underlying cause of the invasion. Uh, You you hear terms like um, even uh, in the left, a term I heard, which I found a little alarming, the way it was phrased, but a tactical error on uh, Putin's part, um, an overreaction on Putin's part, but that the uh, prime underlying cause of the conflict is the expansion of NATO. Um, what's your assessment of that argument? I mean, sadly, this uh, narrative has been bought very much. It's very persuasive for, for, for a number of reasons for for the global left uh, and for the uh, realist school of so for more more, more like rightish uh, realists in in the American uh, foreign policy uh, studies. People like John oh, Mersheimer and exactly. Uh, so the, the the these are quite unlikely bad fellows which concur on that, uh, and it is uh, all the more curious because uh, this. Um, narrative. This this explanation is not exactly the preferred explanation, even for Putin himself. So even the Russian leadership has uh, used this uh, argument rather manipulatively uh, during some period in the beginning of this year and in the end of last year. But in the days preceding the invasion, uh, the last uh, few, the last several speeches of Putin have uh, completely abandoned this topic, uh, instead focusing on the, on the more um, nationalist uh, view. So, so Putin spent several hours speaking into the camera about how Ukraine is an artificial entity created by the evil Bolsheviks and so on and so forth. So 
it was less about uh, it was nothing about uh, so-called security guarantees uh, of Russia, but more about overall uh, explicit desire to expand uh, its own geopolitical uh, area of influence and so on and so forth. Well, I, I saw this, I have to say, rather bizarre meeting uh, that Putin had with a group of stewardesses. Uh, I don't know if you saw this. It was a very strange thing because they, they look more like models in, in stewardesses' uniforms. They were you know, all stunningly beautiful. And they were about 15 or 20 of them around this big table and Putin explaining uh, why He's a, one of the stewardesses, if she is a stewardess, asks, why did this war begin? But there his argument was primarily the threat uh, from Ukrainian militarization, uh, expansion of NATO. He even talks about if Ukraine was in NATO or perhaps even if it wasn't, someday there could be missiles in Ukraine pointed at Russia. Uh, so it seems to me that's the main explanation I've been hearing, and I think what the Russian people have been hearing, no? Um, yeah, so there is this narrative of uh, constant, of Russia being constantly encircled, yes. Uh, this is, uh, this is, this is uh, a part of the, of the dominating uh, uh, discourse. Uh, it, it is not exactly, it is not exactly uh, the, the, the narrative that helps us understand the conflict. Um, it helps uh, to perhaps uh, analytically distinguish two different uh, scales, uh, chronological scales, because if we take, uh, if we think in decades, if we think uh, in terms of uh, the last half a century, uh, in that sense, of course, uh, NATO and more precisely the US with its um, military and political influence was certainly a force, has, has been a force that the, whose influence is, uh, is uh, extremely important for structuring the whole picture of the global capitalism and, and the global uh, political conjuncture as well. Uh, in that sense, uh, yes, uh, it had it. It had uh, the the agency of the U.S. of the American imperialism, if you want to put it that way, certainly uh, affected Putin's uh, view of things as well as everything else in the world. However, if we want to uh, look for reasons for the specifically Ukrainian-Russian conflict, um, and if we want to take a scale of the last, uh, let's say, 20 years, uh, it is safe to say that, uh, in, that in this respect, uh, the perspective of NATO, of Ukrainian, Ukraine's NATO membership has, been out, has not been on the table at least since, 20, since 2008. Uh, since the famous Bucharest summit, when uh, the leaders of Ukraine, Georgia, and I believe Moldova uh, filed a uh, formal uh, uh, request for being granted a plan for, for NATO membership. And uh, this request was not supported by, by the NATO. So it, uh, uh, despite the basically the pleas from the, from the President Yushchenko of Ukraine, at that time, this was the very extremely pro-Western president. So at that point, it already should have, it be, did become extremely clear for everyone, including Putin, that this is not going to happen precisely because of uh, 
the West's uh, considerations for Putin's so-called uh, security guarantees or zones of influence and so on. Uh, uh, it, is, it is true that uh, since then, especially since 2014, after the beginning of the, of the war actually, uh, Ukraine has been uh, basically pushed again, if we, if we look at the development of these events, uh, pushed by the, by the actions, by the Russian invasion uh, into, the, into the arms of, um, of Washington in terms of political and military cooperation. This still does not make it any more probable that Ukraine would ever have been considered uh, uh, membership a member of, of the NATO, but there was uh, this process of uh, cooperation, of military cooperation that has been growing closer and closer. And the public opinion in Ukraine has been um, warmer and warmer towards the NATO. So if uh, around, 20, around 2008, uh, the share of Ukrainians who would be favorable to membership of NATO in the NATO was like very, very small, so it was maybe around 20%, around that figure. Uh, recently, in the recent years, this has grown up to uh, 62%. And obviously, after the invasion, it has, uh, so now it, it, is, it, is, it is extremely high. So, so is- part, of the arg- part of the argument goes, I, I, you kind of talked a bit about it, but the argument goes that even if NATO was never going to actually allow Ukraine to become a full member, there's the term now is was a de facto member, people are saying, because of what is it, more than a billion dollars of military uh, support equipment, starting with Trump, then under Biden. Now, of course, that ain't the same because there's no Article 5. So I, I find that argument. But still, the extent of militarization of Ukraine, these people argue, was legitimately seen as a threat. They say the Americans would never allow a, a pro-Russian Canada to get so armed uh, or Mexico. Uh, so what was that not a provocation? Well, um, I mean, it's all fine discussing uh, security guarantees of uh, Russia, which is entitled to have its legitimate security guarantees, which is not the case apparently for Ukraine, uh, whose security guarantees have been basically uh, discarded. So it, they existed in the form of the, of the Budapest uh, Memorandum from uh, 1994. I mean, I'm sure you know this story. It was even mentioned by President Zelensky recently, uh, just just in the just uh, just before the the invasion, where he was he reminded that uh, Ukraine. Re, uh, refused uh, to keep uh, its nuclear weapons in exchange for the guarantees that now that then were uh, basically trampled uh, uh, trampled by by Russia, and uh, and the history the recent history exactly shows what happens when Ukraine is demilit is demilitarized because uh, since uh, the early 90s until the early 2010s two decades, more than two decades, Ukraine has been exactly disarming itself. So because it's it's not exactly a very rich country, as you might guess, and uh, its budget uh, uh, was structured consistently in the the way that that made the army the less privileged uh, receiver of funds, which led 
the country to the situation in which in 2014, the Russian forces uh, annexed Crimea without, without much fuss. And then they were able to, uh, to successfully establish its, uh, their military and political domination over two breakaway regions, or to make them basically breakaway. So the, the only logical reason that Ukrainians uh, take out a uh, logical lesson that Ukrainians take out of this whole history is that you should, you should be armed to teeth, you should uh, pick uh, the strongest uh, bully uh, in the neighborhood, which, which happens to be the United States, to protect yourself from the bully right next to your door. Unfortunately, this is, this is the Ukrainian perspective. Uh, this, is, this is the point of view of its security guarantees, if we want to speak in that language. And why, why did, prior to the invasion or the lead up to it, why did Ukrainians think that Russia was the bully? Um, and partly the whole issue of Donbass, uh, what is your take on that? Because uh, you would think at least some of the people in Donbass who have you know, declared independence recently, uh, they saw Russia as a, as a defender, not a bully. Uh, well, there are two extreme, two opposing views on the, on the conflict uh, around the Donbass, uh, on the war that has started in 2014. Uh, Ukrainians, so I mean Ukrainian uh, nationalists, uh, react extremely angrily when uh, you call it, you call the situation a civil war, civil conflict because they only agree to acknowledge uh, the agency of the Russian uh, government. And the other side uh, uh, is only willing to acknowledge the agency of the, of the working class or, or how you call, however you might call them, the, uh, the people who suddenly found their new national identity in the Donbass. Uh, certainly, uh, there are both uh, there are both dimensions uh, to this story. Uh, there was a, certainly an inner conflict uh, at the uh, at the time of of uh, the Euromaidan of 2013 2014. Uh, there were there were people in the Donbas who reacted who who were who did who did not agree with the with what was happening in Kiev. Uh, but this uh, the situation would never have uh, accelerated to the uh, to the extent to which it did, were it not for the uh, for the factor of Russia, which sent its troops and uh, and escalated the conflict to the to the stage of the of the of actual war of actual military hostilities. Um, I've talked to progressive Russians uh, who who are very opposed to the war, very opposed to the invasion, but they argue that the uh, forces in Donbass, uh, who if I understand it correctly, at least in 2014, were just asking for a federated uh, model of uh, Ukraine uh, to have uh, sort of the rights of maybe a Quebec within a Canada, uh, didn't get anywhere with that. Uh, and then started wanting a real autonomy, and then they get the Minsk Agreement, um, which, uh, according to the progressive Russians, I'm talking to the Ukrainian government, did not try to implement it all, which would have been res respected the autonomy. 
Um, and that and that generally uh, that, that there's a split even in the Russian left over the war that a section of the Russian left see the Ukrainian government and the forces around it as so right wing uh, and in fact suppress the Ukrainian left of which you're part of um, that they're mixed about all this because even though they don't like Putin and do not, don't in any way see him as a progressive force, they see the Ukrainian government as a more right-wing force in this particular situation. So, the, so but, but it all surrounds the issue of Donbass. Uh, so, and, and I know you grew up as a Russian, in a Russian speaking family. So, so where, where, what's your take on the truth of all this? Because it gets very uh, contradictory. Well, like I said, yes, uh, we cannot deny. I mean, I will not deny the existence of uh, of a of a genuine uh, uh, a genuine popular participation in that in in those uh, uprisings uh, at the early stage of 2014. Uh, were they legitimate? Um, I mean, it's uh, um, so the. Uh, did they uh, were they were they right to demand the uh, federalization and whatnot uh, language rights autonomy? Uh, sure, that is uh, that is, in principle this sounds completely completely fine and legitimate. And uh, in principle, I agree, of course, that the uh, Euromaidan with its uh, scary pictures, with its uh, new government that. Did not uh, find anything better to do in the first, in the very first days uh, after it seized power, than to dismantle the law about languages, which which was a purely symbolic step. I mean, it doesn't, it didn't change anything in practice, but it did, it it did create a certain atmosphere, which was so. So, for people who don't know, this was a law that would have outlawed outlawed the use of Russian. I don't think it ever was implemented, but that's sort of expressed an attitude. Yeah. I mean, if you want, we can we, we can actually go slightly back even in this regard, if if you feel it is yeah, go ahead about the languages. Uh, so the whole uh, thing with so so in principle, Ukraine is a heterogeneous country linguistically and ethnically. It doesn't make it uh, exotic. Doesn't make it illegitimate. There, there are plenty of countries like that, um, and it was not always uh, a political issue. It has uh, become uh, politicized uh, explicitly starting from only from the 2000s when uh, these identities, so the competition of uh, so-called ethnic Ukrainian identity and so-called Islamic, so more kind of post-imperial identity with, uh, uh, with which emphasized uh, Russian language and Orthodox church and uh, Soviet uh, symbolism. Uh, this competition between two, these two national projects was, uh, was the artifact uh, imposed by the logic of parliamentary competition in the 2000s. So the, this, is the, this was the framework found uh, uh, by uh, the oligarchic forces, uh, uh, which was the easiest for them uh, to use uh, for their competition and the parliamentary politics, party, in the party politics. Uh, afterwards, uh, this uh, framework has uh, um, got its logic, uh, the logic of its own, which means that uh, the spiral of polarization started to unfold. Uh, 
and eventually it it started getting out of the control of the of the of these uh, of these politicians themselves in 2012 uh, yes 2012 we had uh, the president yanukovych which, which was betting which was the embodiment of this uh, pro russian or east slavic identity and uh, in order to reinforce his political domination uh, he bet on the on the further polarization by by passing the, the law on languages, which did not change basically anything, in fact, but it was, a, it was a sold to the population as, uh, as this big uh, change, which, uh, which, finally, uh, impose, which finally establishes uh, historical justice for the Russian speakers. Uh, in fact, this was basically about I don't know the language on the on the beer bottles. So whether you should double it, like in Canada, for example. So stuff which does not have uh, much to do. So it, it definitely was not about making everyone speak one language or the other. But it it led to great celebrations on the part of the pro-Russian uh, politicians and to great um, protests, the outrage, uh, uh, st uh, not strikes but pickets. Uh, um, on the part of the of the Ukrainian nationalists, then uh, one year and a half later, you have this revolution. You have this uh, other the politicians representing the other identitarian camp, camp uh, seizing the power. And uh, then what they do, they take uh, they grab this use, useless law and they uh, cancel it like very publicly, very loudly. Which again does not change anything in the in, in the practical functioning of the languages. Uh, still, even now in Ukraine, you can speak like most most of Ukrainian uh, army, in fact, is Russophone, speaks Russian, uh, so it's not outlawed or anything. But it is it sends a signal. The signal is uh, perceived uh, with uh, triumph by one camp and with uh, horror by the other camp. So the polarization makes another step um, the ukrainian nationalists say yeah we should we will send uh, we will send uh, our militarized units to crimea to show them who's the who's the uh, who's the boss here obviously this is this this is immediately grabbed on and uh, reproduced uh, in the in the internet to mobilize uh, russian speakers in crimea and elsewhere so, so you you have this uh, identitarian conflict which uh, which gets out of control, um, and uh, which allows uh, uh, finally a uh, foreign force to intervene on the grounds of protecting the Russian speakers from the from the genocide and etc. etc. Et the uh, the Ukrainian nationalists, uh, many of them are are virtual or even overt Nazis. Um, and again, my Russian friends tell me there was good reason to fear what they might have done or did do in Crimea. Um, thousands of people apparently over, the, over that eight year, last eight years were killed in Donbass, they say by these Ukrainian nationalist forces in the Ukrainian military. Um, and then you combine that with this military or new militarization of Ukraine, um, that there was reason to believe that this 
buildup of Ukrainian military prior to the buildup of the Russian encirclement and then invasion, that there was reason for Russia to believe that this rearming, if you can say, Ukrainian military might try to go into Donbass and crush the, uh, in the movement for autonomy and independence. Is that, was that a legitimate concern on Russia's part? Okay, you see, I have uh, I have not even exactly uh, got your intention initially when you first asked this question because this is uh, exactly the kind of this this discourse is uh, is evidently um, omnipresent in Russia, but it is so far from the from the um, uh, from from what people. Uh, were speaking about and and how they saw the situation in Ukraine over the last this, year. This this is what you know amongst large sections of the left all around the world is sort of what one is hearing. I mean, I'm not going to be an advocate of uh, whatever nationalist bullshit Ukrainian government after the Euromaidan and uh, and up to up to maybe now has been doing. So I'm not I'm not, I'm not going to explain that everything. That it's uh, right in uh, in those language laws and everything, but it's I find it uh, utterly ridiculous the very idea that Ukraine at any point in its uh, recent history, whether under the President Zelensky or under more nationalist uh, certainly very nationalist President Poroshenko previously, uh, was ever intending uh, seriously to invade uh, Crimea to take it by force Crimea or the Donbas. I mean the differential in forces. Now, when we have the when uh, the Russian full-scale invasion is uh, already is uh, muddling on three weeks, uh, and uh, the whole world is kind of looking at it in disbelief, how come the Russian army is so seems to be so weak? What has happened uh, to all our analysis? Now we we might start we we we, we, we might. Uh, have the new information to reconsider, but so far this was a common knowledge among in the whole world, including in Ukraine, that no Russia is completely unbeatable, and it would be a suicide for anyone who would be who would want to do that. So yes, there was this remilitarization because uh, I mean you can imagine a country that lives uh, that spends eight years in the situation of low intensity war because this was not a frozen conflict. There were deaths. Uh, if not every day, certainly every week. Um, so, so yes, the there was certainly the militarization of the economy, uh, and the army was building up, but uh, hardly even even among the most radical uh, nationalists, even the, the hardly even the super Nazi Ukrainian uh, far right uh, flank would ever dream of uh, of actually launching an offensive against uh, Russian controlled territories. So if it's not NATO expansion in reality that motivates this invasion, and I've, I've always thought that too, because uh, it was clear Ukraine could never get into NATO. Uh, and was, you need consensus in NATO to allow a new country. And I think enough countries had made it very clear that they were never gonna let Ukraine into NATO. Um, and, and if the de facto, as people call it, NATOization of Ukraine, the military buildup, it was certainly there, but if it's not actual an actual threat, 
uh, to Russia in, in, in an offensive way. And you're saying even to Donbass, uh, not a, an, a threat. Uh, and uh, if defense of, and, and that thus then the defense of Donbass isn't really a motivating factor <laughs> for the invasion, then what the hell is? What is this about? Um, you, I'm not, uh, I don't know if you, if uh, there is a, uh, the political scientist Ilya Matveyev among your Russian friends, your Russian leftist friends. If no. not, uh, I highly recommend. Uh, so he's a very bright uh, person. Uh, so, and I owe it to him uh, the, the, this uh, um, this argument that it seems that we all uh, have been uh, kind of blind to the possibility of uh, of real ideological politics existing, uh, especially in, in the post-Soviet space. Because this uh, this part of the world, uh, uh, ever after the breakup of the Soviet Union, has been utterly cynical in terms of ideologies. So I mean, the this is true for the population. Nobody, I mean, everybody perceives uh, politics in principle and ideologies in principle as uh, as only as smoke and mirrors, uh, as lies which which only use uh, are used to mask uh, real intentions, which lie uh, certainly in, somewhere in the sphere of economy, economic control. Um, and, um, but this whole story seems to show us that, that no, that uh, how strangely as it may seem, uh, Russian leadership is not crazy, no. Uh, it's, it acts rationally from the point of view of its uh, ideologized uh, worldview, the worldview that is informed by the, by uh, the uh, accent on the, uh, by the agenda of uh, restoration of the military and political might the, uh, of, of, of the empire, uh, even if it comes at the cost of, uh, of economy, of uh, well-being, of, uh, of economic well-being, and at the cost of uh, political good standing. So, so now we can see that Russia, basically Russian government, uh, has made conscious steps towards itself marginalizing on the political scene, but it is uh, a rational step in the within this framework of um, of uh, the empire that fa that famously, as the impression go as the, as the expression goes, uh, stands up from its knees, that shows its uh, military might, that is not afraid to face the. Uh, the ultimate boss of the United States and so on. So I think we face uh, the return of the ideology to, to, the, uh, to this part of the world. But certainly underpinning that, uh, it's, and, I, and I'll say this twice, I am not comparing Putin to Hitler. Uh, and the invasion of Ukraine, while I think is a violation of international law, and I emphasize that where some people are paying lip service to that. You know, I, I remember uh, a conversation before the Iraq war, uh, where one of my guests on a show I had uh, was saying to an Iraqi who was saying, uh, uh, you got to help us overthrow Saddam because uh, he's such a terrible dictator. And my guest said, you know what? That's your problem. My problem is international law. My problem is the world 
doesn't unravel into total militarized chaos. So you want to get rid of Saddam, go ahead. But don't ask us to completely break down international law that was established after World War II. Um, so that's my, I have three concerns here. One, international law, which I think has been violated grossly. Uh, two, uh, I'm most everything I look at these days, I look at the issue of climate change as the most important critical threat we have. And, and all of this is completely taken the most recent IPCC report off the table for even talking about a report that's apocalyptic in its language. And three, the threat of nuclear war, because whatever the hell happens in Ukraine, we're getting closer to the threat of nuclear war. Accidental, I doubt deliberate, but when you start getting this tense, shit happens. Um, and we don't have room for shit happens uh, with this. Um, so, so but, but all that being said, the, the underlying reasons have to be economic. And, I, and it seems to me, I think anyway, it's very similar to the rise of fascism in Germany in the sense that Germany deserved to be a major power of Europe. And after World I, the West didn't want it to be, of course, until they did. They wanted to point it at the Soviet Union. And they helped those forces within Germany that would, they thought were so anti-communist, so fascist that it would serve them. And then of course, be careful what you wish for. Um, but, but this refusal of the West to recognize that Russia has to have a space within the capitalist world is assuming you want a capitalist world and I don't, but we got one. Russia deserves to be a major power of Europe, including probably having more access to the European markets than the United States does. It's not a bloody European country. I mean, clearly that's gotta be the, the base of which this great need to reinvigorate, to call upon all the ideology of empire has to rest, no? Well, it, with, with, uh, with uh, Germany, uh, Germany, the story is very well known. And I mean, it's very uh, well analyzed in, in terms of uh, Marxist uh, conceptual apparatus, right? So you have uh, all this uh, talk of, uh, of financial capital, of imperialism in the, in the Lenin sense of finances, uh, expanding and so on and so forth. Uh, in this sense, uh, so far at least, it's uh, it's been hard for me to grasp uh, Russian imperialism in these classical uh, terms. Um, although, although if you if you speak about yes about the lost uh, about the humiliation of the empire, this uh, this is certainly this is certainly true. Uh, the ambitions uh, that are frustrated the zones of influence or zones of exclusive interests that are negated uh, and so on. Certainly, certainly this is all uh, happening, this is all taking place. In terms of purely economic dimension, uh, what we can say for sure is, uh, is this, um, is, is, is uh, the importance of Ukraine economically for, for Russia. We have seen that, um, well, basically, we can we can trace it back to the uh, to the very beginning of uh, of the independent existence of Ukraine in 1991, uh, when it was part of the of the common 
of the shared economic space and it had trouble uh, leaving it uh, and and then the reintegrationist attempts uh, that began in around 2010 2011 with the with the projects of Eurasian Economic Union which it was so supposed to become a, to become a an uh, uh, an entity uh, akin to to the European Union so a, a competing entity geopolitical and geoeconomic entity uh, the Russia was, or Putin was was adamant in uh, in uh, trying to get Ukraine into that into that uh, uh, um, into that union, uh, and because uh, because Ukraine is uh, is a metallurgical uh, producer uh, that competes with Russia currently, it is uh, it competes with Russia in uh, agrarian in, uh, on the agrarian commodity markets. Um, if uh, if these two uh, major producers in its uh, are joined into one, uh, certainly it's it it will it it will of course um, be a major improvement in terms of for for the Russian terms of trade for its economic standing globally, and this is precisely why uh, Ukrainian ruling class was so hesitant despite. Its cultural proximity, despite that is, uh, despite the fact that it was, uh, so the Ukrainian oligarchs have been mostly uh, promoting this uh, pro-Russian, this uh, so-called Islamic identity on the internal political scene, but they were very reluctant to agree to any uh, of these uh, integrationist projects that that would, because uh, these project projects did not. Uh, uh, did not uh, give them any promises of survival, because if you have to combine the two uh, the two uh, powers, then it is Russian bourgeoisie that gets the goods, and Ukrainian bourgeoisie is not uh, does not get any 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 place of its own in this picture. So this is this is what I could say in terms of economy. Yeah. The uh, you, you talked earlier about agency. And most of the analysis that gets done everywhere is about the interest and motivations of the Russians, the interest and motivation of the Americans. Uh, but there isn't a heck of a lot of talk about the interest and motivation of the Ukrainians. Other these days, you know, Zelensky is sort of the hero standing up to the brutes. Talk, talk about the, uh, first of all, I want to really talk about the Ukrainian people, but let's first start with the Ukrainian oligarchy who don't get all that much talked about these days. They're not monolithic, they have their own agendas, and, and maybe the analysis really should start from them. Um, so, so yeah, so there is this uh, weird uh, faction or rather weird formation of the ruling class which uh, which is typical for the post-Soviet space. I mean, elsewhere, oligarchs are a rude word, and this is how this is how I see it is perceived uh, today uh, in uh, in the Anglosphere, also in France. People don't understand why you're calling them oligarchs. You are you are just probably mad at them. That's why you use this word. Well, let me let me just say Bernie Sanders correctly called American billionaires oligarchs. So when I say oligarchs, I'm including Americans. 
I mean, uh, so so in in places like Russia and Ukraine, oligarchs uh, are yeah are term which is more defined, which is more strict and even neutral. So it simply means someone who has enormous concentration of wealth, uh, who uh, uses who uh, uses this wealth uh, to this economic wealth to um, conserve uh, enormous uh, amount of political power. And uh, the two depend on each other. So this is where perhaps I would see, in fact, difference between the, um, the super rich and super politically uh, powerful people in the US. I don't think and, so different, but that's another topic. Let's, uh... So, I mean, if, if, if we speak, if, if we use the liberal language, the language of liberal economists, this is about the property rights. Because in Ukraine, uh, the oligarchs, uh, if they fall out of grace, uh, they can be, I mean, extinguished economically as well, which might probably not uh, be the case in the U.S. Yeah, not uh, so e- not so easy. So this is the, this is uh, this is the definition of oligarchy. So people who who own who own political and economic power. These two types of capital are used inter- interchangeably to support each other, and whose uh, property is guaranteed by their proximity to to the political center of gravity. Uh, this first uh, was uh, created. This class was first. Uh, uh, it saw the day in uh, the light of the day in Russia in the 90s after the privatization, because Russia privatized more abruptly. It was much uh, much more quick and uh, brutal story in Russia than in Ukraine. Uh, then you, because already in uh, by 1996, you had uh, this uh, uh, re-election of Yeltsin, which was basically organized, massively falsified by by the by these oligarchs. Uh, in Ukraine, uh, this story begins uh, rather in the in the second presidential term of the president Kuchma, is so in uh, the first half of the 2000s, when uh, the this aforementioned president. Uh, admitted many times explicitly that he had in mind the creation of a national bourgeoisie, the creation of a national property class. Uh, and uh, the, if this is precisely for this, uh, with this vision in mind, that he conducted privatization by limiting access to foreign bidders, by selling uh, uh, assets selling the industrial assets uh, very cheaply to insiders so for example one of the oligarchs is uh, is his son-in-law and thereby creating creating the uh, creating the ruling class Uh, because uh, before that uh, there was only him so there was the uh, political administration and uh, the industrial administration, this we known as red directors, so the directors of state-owned factories. After this, after the privatization, we've got this uh, new elite of oligarchs, so so the super-rich people that control basically all the economy. And there is only, I mean, you can count them on on the fingers of one hand, maximum two hands. Uh, contrary to Russia. This this class has not been uh, shifted, has not uh, been evacuated out of uh, political competition, because currently there are still certainly oligarchs in Russia, but 
um, but there is, uh, I mean, they they, uh, they they certainly participate probably in some kind of politics, but in a very implicit manner, some some undercover under um, uh, behind the scenes uh, negotiations. In Ukraine, starting from the 2000s, we see uh, the system which has been uh, called uh, oligarchic democracy in this somewhat paradoxical manner. So the parliamentary democracy, which is nevertheless uh, uh, mostly uh, the competition of, uh, of political machines controlled by the oligarchs. So the parties are not grassroots parties are not what you have elsewhere. These are vertical mechanisms that are glued by the forces of patronage of uh, clientelism and so on. Uh, and and so it happened so so it goes yes so the other the other important factor in ukraine which is not the case anymore in russia is the media the control over the media in russia the the competition between the media has been i think has evaporated already in the early putin years in ukraine this is still the case that you that an oligarch is basically a person who not who is not only wealthy and politically influential, but also a person who is mediatically influential, who owns at least one TV channel. And so this competition is perpetuated in the public sphere by way of uh, competing narratives uh, in the media. Uh, we're going to do a part two of this conversation, uh, which we're going to post as quickly as we can after part one. Uh, but just before we end it here, uh, I just want to kind of get back to the real world here, because once one gets into the analysis of the situation, um, it's easy to kind of lose sight of the savagery of the invasion and the suffering of the people. So just to end this part, just what are you hearing about what's happening now? And then in part two, we're going to continue sort of talking about the history and we're going to talk about just what happened in 2014. But first of all, what are you hearing about what's happening on the ground? So from the from the latest reports, uh, it looks like Kiev has been is still under under artillery shelling episodically, I mean, not constantly, but uh, but there are there are residential districts in Kiev that are that are under fire, and uh, it is much more so uh, the case for Kharkiv, which is incidentally the most Russophone, the most Russian-speaking uh, city in Ukraine uh, in the east, which has been under uh, is it is not still not under siege, not besieged yet, but uh, the, the the Russian forces are trying to close in around it. And uh, it's uh, there. There is a massive destruction there, and the third, uh, the third place uh, where it's been extremely hot uh, currently is Mariupol, a port city in uh, southeastern Ukraine, which is besieged, which is uh, extremely important strategically for Russians to capture. Um, therefore, they the, this is currently the scene of the most uh, brutal the, uh, war crimes. So in part two, we're, we're gonna continue some of the historical conversation as well as some of the questions of just what motivated the invasion and, and, and what's happening in terms of the politics amongst the people. 
which is, is not monolithic either. Uh, so uh, please join us for part two of this uh, conversation. And uh, thanks for joining us.